The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. If we follow these simple rules together, we will get through this winter together. There are unquestionably difficult months to come and the fight against COVID is by no means over. Ah, happy Wednesday, everybody. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson imposing, yes, up to six months worth of new national restrictions, saying the UK has returned to a perilous point of virus infections. Elsewhere, tensions boiling over at the UN General Assembly as the Chinese President Xi says he won't engage in a zero-sum game with the US, whilst President Trump once again blames Beijing for the virus outbreak. We must hold accountable the nation which unleashed this plague onto the world, China. The United Nations must hold China accountable for their actions. Good morning, everybody. The Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq break their losing streak. Technology is stronger. The gains driven by companies like Amazon. So we had another big day for tech shares. This as the U.S. government reaches a funding deal until December the 11th. Nike shares are on track to hit an all-time high after the sportswear giant reports an 82% spike in online sales with strong demand from China. Tesla loses $50 billion in market value after CEO Elon Musk's Battery Day announcements disappoint investors, despite an upbeat guidance on vehicle deliveries. About three years from now, uh, we're confident we can make a very calm, a uh, very compelling $25,000 electric vehicle uh, that's also fully autonomous. Good morning, everyone. What I really want to talk about is those Nike sales. I want to talk about the Tesla picks as well. But what I've got to talk about is Boris Johnson. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. Curfew uh, restrictions curtailed activity like like you you know we have some long days sometimes and do stuff off camera so i got back fairly late yesterday Mm. uh, and i have to say i traveled on public transport on the trains yesterday and i noticed that uh, certain parts of london they seem to not realize you have to wear masks Uh, so on the train you notice people not wearing oh it was amazing i had to wait at east croydon station to get my transfer train down to the backward line that i live on the rural Mm. uh, part of east sussex as well and i noticed a good 30 percent of people didn't seem to see the sign next to them that said 100 pound fine for not wearing a mask Really? That's extraordinary because I well, assume that people were wearing masks on public transport at this point. You know, I've seen buses and yeah. even on the tube, but I didn't realise on some of them. No, I, I, maybe, I, maybe I misunderstood. Maybe I, maybe not wearing a mask is, is allowed for, dare I say, younger people in East Croydon. If you are in East Croydon and you're not wearing a mask, you're a loser. Uh, right, let's move on. Are we allowed to say that on air? Yes. If you're on public <laughs> transport and you're not wearing a mask and you're in East Croydon, you're a loser. Right. Or other parts of London are available. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says Britain faces an unquestionably difficult winter in an address to the nation. He unveiled new virus restrictions, including a U-turn on work from home and a 10pm curfew on pubs and restaurants. Johnson said the measures could be in place for as long as six months and did not rule out tougher rules in the future. The Prime Minister urged the country to, quote, summon the discipline and resolve to weather the winter whilst announcing the rule-flouting minority. We have to acknowledge that this is a great and freedom-loving country. And while the vast majority have complied with the rules, there have been too many breaches, too many opportunities 
for our invisible enemy to slip through undetected. The virus has started to spread again in an exponential way. Infections are up. Hospital admissions are climbing. We can see what's happening in France and Spain. Well, the Prime Minister also emphasised that the government does have more power. Uh, Should people uh, really not follow the guidelines and should cases continue to rise? So today I said I had a package of tougher measures in England. Early closing for pubs, bars, table service only, closing businesses that are not COVID secure, expanding the use of face coverings, new fines for those that fail to comply, once again asking office workers to work from home if they can, while enforcing the rule of six, indoors and outdoors. A tougher package of national measures combined with the potential for tougher local restrictions for areas already in lockdown. So Boris Johnson uh, setting out the new regime that Brits will operate under. But um, let me make a couple of points and then I bring uh, Stephen Caron into this conversation. Uh, One, I don't think uh, the update is particularly onerous. We had the 10pm curfew well flagged. The government has tried here to keep many of these service establishments open. Uh, So from that perspective, not a significant change. This felt more like a small detail tap on the tiller to remind those people, Steve, that uh, you're unhappy about, that it is important to follow the directions. And I'll just throw that in. A lot of people have talked about the confusing messages from the government. They haven't been that confusing. The confusing bit is that half the population at times, it seems, don't seem to understand what they should be doing when they walk into shops or when they sit on public transport. And just to reinforce the message that I don't think this is a big change, looking at the opening calls on the FTSE this morning, they don't seem particularly out of line with what we see on other European markets this hour, which suggests to me that the investor community has largely looked at what Boris Johnson announced yesterday and yawned and said, okay, fine, we understand, uh, we'll move on here. Of course, the reality is it'll take a few months for us to actually figure out whether it means now that we do see uh, a number of uh, other companies Uh, running into financial trouble by the end of the year. But the universities are open, the schools are still open, the potential vectors for transmission that they represent still represent those vectors for transmission. So to my mind, and I don't know what you guys think, this felt like a modest adjustment rather than the big deal it was flagged up to be ahead of the speech. Yeah, I I hear you, Jeff, and I I understand your point of view. I mean, let me just make the point about, again, from my own personal experience of the last 24 hours, there I was, and I almost wanted to take photos of people standing next to the sign that said £100 fine, as it was before the Prime Minister spoke yesterday, standing next to the £100 fine signs on East Croydon, Platform 6 I was on, actually, if anyone's interested, uh, and standing there with no mask on as well. Now, there were magnificent staff of Network Rail around, and I'm sure... British Transport Police were around somewhere as well. But nobody was being told to put their masks on. Nobody was being told uh, that they would be fined as well. Now, bearing in mind, I'm talking about the vast majority of the population, 60-70% clearly had their masks on and had got the message. But the others either could not read or were thick, quite frankly, about the restrictions. I don't know whether masks work. I'll be honest with you, I think there are some situations where one wears a mask, but I'm not entirely sure whether it limits transmission, i.e. if you're on your own in a car. But 
fact is, if the rule is the rule, you have to wear a mask on public transport. I think there's been no uh, ambiguity about that as well. And I don't see the point in fining people £200, £1,000, £10,000 if they're not going to obey it in the first place. I'm not going to disagree with you on masks, but I do disagree with Jeff about these rules not being more onerous because I think they are, particularly for some segments of the economy, restaurants. You think about a restaurant that would normally have two dinner sittings and having two sittings is quite instrumental to, to the revenue of many of these businesses that have been hard hit for many months being closed. Now they're finally re opening and uh, they're restricted to closing by 10 p.m. That is very hard to pull off at two sittings between 6 and 10 p.m. I mean, how many diners in the UK actually want to have dinner at 6 p.m. unless they're doing a squawkbox shift where they start at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning? So I, I do think that's a problem. You saw the reactions from a, a lot of the, the fine dining establishments just talking about that, how negative it was for their business yesterday, but tr- of course trying to adapt to the changes. Uh, the other point I would make around the, the time frame, what we've seen in this crisis is that we've been skipping to a new changes on, on a monthly or a, just over you know, a six-weekly basis. And it feels as though we've got a, a slightly longer time frame now as we talk about so six monthly changes. And I wonder whether that's good or bad, uh, you know, negative in the sense that you lose a little bit of optimism that there's going to be some change, imminent change in future. But perhaps it's more positive for businesses that are trying to plan at this point. And, uh, you know, when we talk about how detrimental this is in planning for the future, there was a suggestion yesterday that the Chancellor could come up with some sort of wage subsidy that is very similar to the Germans. So, you know, I wonder how much deeper we're going to have to dig into the coffers, Jeff, to try and pay for some of these changes now, as you're going to see another hit to some quarters of the economy. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just come back on the restaurants because I think um, I've been to a a number of magnificent establishments over the last few weeks that have done a very good job of adapting their business proposition to the adjustment in the rules. And I figure, look, 10 o'clock is not an unreasonable time to uh, shut up shop. Quite frankly, a lot of people I know of our age now uh, who don't um, tend to stay out much later than 10 o'clock these days. So I think restaurants, and cafes and pubs they can adapt if they need to adapt and they can probably squeeze in those uh, two sittings if there is the demand for it I think the real problem at the moment Karen is the discomfort that a lot of people feel when they go into a restaurant they have to give their uh, contact information uh, in case there is any follow-up need to get in touch with them in case there is a an outbreak in the restaurant uh, then they get served by a person in a face mask or wearing a perspex screen which again is fairly uncomfortable um so i would just say i think businesses can adapt they can adjust as they have done magnificently uh, over the near term here i guess um i would just throw one other point in here and it's um it's really this this question of brexit and i know i'm muddying the waters by throwing brexit into this at this stage um i do wonder if we need to um i, I I'm not sure whether the word is to um, not exactly cancel, but suspend the process at this point or whether there's another tack that needs to be taken. But it seems to me that we are following France and Spain down the road. Uh, There is a a lot of focus required by European governments uh, to deal with this second wave of the pandemic. And in the midst of this, we're trying to negotiate um, a final trade agreement exit deal, which seems to me to be going nowhere at this point as governments are distracted by everything else we're taking on.
Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, the timing was always going to be challenging a second wave of infections and trying to come up with this trade deal uh, with the Europeans. It was always going to coincide, wasn't it? Uh, let's push on and take a look at the global picture as the, the death toll in America due to the pandemic has now topped 200,000 about eight months after the virus was first confirmed in the country. The outbreak has claimed more lives than the number of U.S. soldiers killed during World War One and the Vietnam War. It comes as cases rise across more than half of the country's states, surging almost 20% compared to a week ago. President Donald Trump has once again accused China of causing the global pandemic. Speaking at the United Nations General Assembly on the organization's 75th anniversary, Trump urged the international community to rally against China. As we pursue this bright future, we must hold accountable the nation which unleashed this plague onto the world, China. In the earliest days of the virus, China locked down travel domestically while allowing flights to leave China and infect the world. China condemned my travel ban on their country, even as they canceled domestic flights and locked citizens in their homes. The Chinese government and the World Health Organization which is virtually controlled by China, falsely declared that there was no evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. Later, they falsely said people without symptoms would not spread the disease. The United Nations must hold China accountable for their actions. And Chinese President Xi Jinping has struck a more conciliatory tone, calling for enhanced international cooperation to overcome the coronavirus crisis. We will never seek hegemony, expansion or sphere of influence. We have no intention to fight either a cold war or a hot one with any country. We will continue to narrow differences and resolve disputes with others through dialogue and negotiation. Uh, coming up on the show, US markets rebound after several days of losses. More on this when we come back. Plus, Karen. Just a reminder for more on the possible consequences from the UK's reintroduction of restrictions, be sure to check out the Sportbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Okay, let's have a quick look at the Asian markets and the opening calls. And I just want to say something. You can never look at the boards. Karen, Jeff, you, term, you, you know the term white label product. Well, I, I kind of wanted to dive deeper into the meaning. So I hit Wikipedia and apparently it was originally in the, in the record industry where white label products came up as well. Uh, and of course, you have a generic product as well, which a retailer or some seller of the product ultimately can put their own label on as well. Mm -hmm. So if CNBC got their news from another place, it would come as white label. Then we'd put the peacock on the front. Mm -hmm. That isn't the case, of course. They use us. But um, that was how they would do it as well. And I feel like that about central banking at the moment as well, i.e., the central banks uh, have a ZZ speech, pretty much, which they put together, which actually came originally from not the vinyl industry, but from Mario Draghi. Uh, and then they say this at every given opportunity. And they, they say other things as well, which have nuances to their own individual markets. But quite frankly, what they say is, uh, we believe that we have got the back of the markets, we've got the back of the economy, we have all the tools in our toolkits, we'll do whatever we can, but we need fiscal and regulatory uh, and structural support. 
And there I have a great deal of sympathy for Jay Powell as well, because I can't help thinking that he is now using white label terms in order to describe the current situation, uh, as indeed a Bernanke or a Yellen or, or dare I say, Madame Lagarde has to do now as well. These are what the US markets did yesterday, uh, despite or because of what Mr Powell was saying on testimony uh, when speaking uh, to uh, various politicians. He's speaking again today at 10 Eastern time. He's speaking again to the Senate uh, on Thursday as well. And quite frankly, I don't know what more he can say. But he was a little bit derailed by Charles Evans yesterday. I mean, we've had all this messaging. The rates are going nowhere until 2023 and perhaps even beyond. Uh, Charles Evans and has Charles taken Evans. the same speech. He's but, just put his own slant no, on it. No, but then Charles Evans starts talking about maybe raising rates before we start averaging 2%. <laughs> it's like, are we doing this different type of inflation targeting regime? And But then rates could go up if we get beyond 2%. It was thoroughly confusing. Jeff, come in here. I know you've got to read on this. But what, I just don't know what else they're supposed to say. We're not going to raise rates ever in the cycle, pretty much, or there or thereabouts, in 2023. Uh, we've got the tools in our toolkit, but we need a bit of support from elsewhere. Yeah, I think the problem you've got here is the one that was uh, documented incredibly eloquently in Lords of Finance about the 1930s. And when you have an economic situation where the provider of the backstop, i.e. the central banks, becomes all important. Inevitably, the main representative of the central bank has every word or eyebrow flicker monitored by those who are heavily invested in this market. And I think that's back where we are. And the uh, conundrum, as you point out for Powell and uh, all the others, Andrew Bailey, is every time they make a public appearance and are expected to speak, the market hangs off their every word. Because quite frankly, given where we've come to since the global financial crisis over 10 years ago, the central banks are such a big part of the market that that if they were ever to reverse their policy at this stage, we, I think we all know what the inevitable conclusion of that would be. And they talk optimistically about this 2% inflation target and this um, wonderland where we are going to see economic fundamentals revert and be strong enough to mean that we can wean ourselves away from the easy money and the largesse that the central banks are providing and the support for governments these days that they're, they're providing. And, and it's just not a reality, is it? So I think we're going to be in this peculiar situation for some time to come. I don't know whether you saw, Steve, I know you're a great one for the debt. The uh, the Office for Budget Responsibility in the United States uh, putting out at the beginning of the week its new forecast suggesting that U.S. debt will go to 195% of GDP by 2050. Now, anybody who can forecast what happens over the next 30 years, I take my hat off to you. But it is clear that we are only going to see even more debt, which means the central banks just get a bigger stake in the poker game. Uh, let's bring Greg Williamson into the conversation, head of strategy at Pluribus Labs. And Greg, we want to get into what, what's happening over at the Fed. And I mentioned before Charles Evans. I mean, we've heard a lot of commentary around forward guidance and it's not doing much to move the market these days. But Evans' comments did capture some attention where you saw a lift in yields. The dollar moved higher as well as he's suggesting that, well, maybe rates will rise before we start averaging 2%. What did you make of those comments when the communication from many central banks has been so dovish, very much in the opposite end of the spectrum? 
Well, good morning to you all. Um, there are 17 Fed governors in the United States, and there are hawks and doves among them. Charles Evans is one of the hawks and has always uh, preached a policy of uh, more aggressive tightening rather than less. So uh, he has another opinion. Uh, I think the important opinion are the voters on the Fed right now. And Jerome Powell and the Fed said at Jackson Hole in this past week, they're going to be very accommodative. They have very low inflation expectations. They don't expect to raise rates before 2023 at the earliest, uh, and that they have all of the tools in the toolbox necessary to impact monetary policy. Uh, as Jeff and Steve said, that's what central bankers have to say right now. They have no alternative. So, Greg, let's talk about what the markets are doing. Uh, we've got central bank policy as super accommodative. We're still waiting out for a U.S. stimulus package if it happens before the election. But markets have been a bit wobbly in September. If you look at the, the trade yesterday, there was a regrouping to the upside and technology names did play a role. What do you make of uh, how confident investors should be in any upside that they're seeing on markets and just what they do with technology stocks at this point? Well, markets are a combination of short, mid, and long-term performance. And what we're witnessing now is what we normally witness in the short term, which is volatility. Uh, markets are reflecting economic growth. And economic growth in several economies is strong and other economies are weak. In the U.S., it happens to be strong. We look are stronger. It looks like that we have much more of a V-shaped recovery underway than we have uh, an L-shaped recovery. Uh, our GDP is better. It was expected to be down 6.5%. It's now risen by 3%, so it's going to be down 3.5%. Unemployment has fallen from an 18% high to 8.4%, and we have uh, a very large number of job openings available. We're seeing discount store retail sales above where they were before COVID hit. We see gasoline usage and mobility increasing. And we still have over 90% of the $2.3 trillion that was set aside for stimulus and the uh, payroll protection plan assets available for distribution. Given all of that and accommodative Fed, the economy looks to be in pretty good shape or is not in pretty good shape, but is improving. And the markets are reflecting that improvement. Markets are also reflecting those longer term trends that have been driving the economy for a few years now the digitization, the healthcare, the infrastructure, agriculture, technology, all continue to do well and drive uh, the, and are driven by, I should say, the, the, the companies that are uh, involved with those long-term economic trends. Greg, very briefly, um, I keep reading reports from brokers expressing concern that President Trump will not leave the White House if it is a very close election call. Just give us your version on this. Is the election going to be important for asset prices? Uh, the election is absolutely going to be important for asset prices. Now, any speculation about what either party will do when they win or lose the election is just that speculation. And it's part of a narrative to influence voters and the outcome. Having said that, we know that the policies that have been laid forth by the two candidates are very different in terms of corporate taxes. Uh, uh, candidate Biden has already said he'll raise those to 28 percent versus Trump's being at 21. Individual taxes, small business taxes and capital gains taxes will also rise under a Biden administration. And there'll be more use of progressive taxes uh, uh, amongst the wealthy. Uh, 
even the GAO impact says that this could be a $4 trillion tax increase spread between corporations and individuals, which will certainly have an impact on the net earnings of companies, the net income of individuals, and um, thus the multiples of share prices and the ability of individuals to afford payments in the economy. Um, That is assuming that those taxes actually are put in place. But yes, politics matters and policy matters in this election. Is there a trade where our audience can make money around this uncertainty on the election? Uh, That's a great question. It's a short term. This is a short term issue. Um, The election hasn't really started yet. It won't start until a week from uh, yesterday uh, in the United States with the first presidential debate. Uh, And there'll be three debates from September 29th through October uh, until the election. As you know, uh, and as your listeners and and audience knows, the U.S. is approximately 47 percent Republican, 47 percent Democrat and 6 percent undecided. And it's that 6 percent that's going to sway the sway the election. You know, elections are swayed by economic policy, by issues like who makes up the Supreme Court, uh, by likability of the candidates. And all of that is going to play out in the next 30 to 60 days. So. Um, you know, is there uh, an odds on favorite at the current time? Probably not. There are certain polls that suggest that uh, the Biden administration or that uh, candidate Biden could win by 77 or win 77 percent of uh, the likely outcomes. And there are others that say that uh, uh, President Trump will be an easy winner with over 335 electoral votes when he only needs 270 to win. It's anybody's uh, guess and really a toss up right now as to who wins the presidential election, but who wins will have a significant impact on uh, economic growth and tax policy going forward. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.